0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Christina Millar, one of the hosts of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Fiona Vera Gray, author of The Right Amount of Panic How Women Trade Freedom for Safety, published in 2018 by Policy Press. Dr. Vera Gray is a researcher based at Durham University working on violence against women and girls. She has over a decade of frontline experience in sexual violence and has written ex- extensively on the topics of sexual violence, sexual harassment, women's safety work, and sexual violence prevention.
1: Fiona, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Christina. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So could you begin the interview just by saying a few words about yourself? Um, sure. I mean, just, I guess, background on... Uh, Building on what you just said then, I'm an assistant professor at Durham University um, in the UK, and I work specifically on violence against women and girls. So, The Right Amount of Panic, which is the book we're going to talk about, was based on my PhD research, which I did, can't remember actually, I think it finished in about 2014, 2015. Um, And before that, I did uh, a master's focusing again on sexual violence and violence against uh, women and girls. So, that's been my main area of focus um and before that I guess my background background is philosophy actually not sociology so I'm really interested in bringing um some of the work from phenomenology specifically some of the um work of uh, Simone de Beauvoir and Merleau uh, Ponty on embodiment and bringing that to the study of uh the sociology of violence against women and girls Wow, that's really interesting. I like um, I
0: minored in philosophy in undergrad, so oh, that's really interesting great. to me. Yeah, I actually minored in ethics. Oh, cool. Um Yeah. So, how did you come to write this book, and how did you become interested in this topic? I know you mentioned a little bit about Simone de Beauvoir yeah. um, and feminist writers, but ha- what
1: inspired you to write this book? Um, so, an- another part of my background, I guess that I. Yeah, these things come to you as you start talking. Um, I I spent about a decade working in the anti violence uh, support sector over here, working in Rape Crisis, um, a Rape Crisis Centre based in South London. And so that's, you know, that kind of practice based background, I guess, really informs my research and my research interests. I'm interested in kind of the the tradition of, of good, great feminist research in producing research that's useful, you know, the idea of not just producing research that's interesting for us but actually something that really resonates and hopefully changes the situation for uh, women and girls in the world today. And and it was actually through working at Rape Crisis that I started to think more about and was interested in the more kind of everyday or common experiences of violence um, and abuse that someone might have. So um, an example was, you know, you'd be working with someone at, at Rape Crisis who had experience of you know, forms of violence and abuse that we really do take seriously um, sometimes, actually. Um, sometimes they're not taken very seriously at all. But, you know, the, t- the t- like rape and child sexual abuse and these really big, heavy forms um, of violence and abuse. And I just started noticing that you would do some really incredible work with someone where, you know, some things would start to shift about the fact that they felt like their body wasn't their own or, or the fact that... Um, they felt scared of being in or around men. You know, some of that work would really start to shift as they opened up and felt safer and were able to trust and talk about their experiences of violence um, in the safe space that's created by the Rape Crisis Centre. And then as soon as they walked out the door, um, they would experience things like uh, men calling out to them from cars, or tooting, or or wolf whistling, or being followed, or um, all of those kind of things. And those are the experiences of violence and abuse that are really minimised in society, that are seen as trivial or complementary or something that we shouldn't be worried about. Um, and I guess why I became interested in it is because those two things are connected, right? They're connected for women, the experiences of, of things like rape and the experiences of things like being followed or being called out at because it all has the same message underneath it. The underlying message there is that your body is something that can be intruded on by by men generally, um, but definitely by other people. Your body is not something that is yours to wholly be in. Um, And so I, I wanted to look more, I guess, at those more everyday forms of violence and abuse and talk to women about what the impact was, what they'd seen the impact being in terms of their embodiment, in terms of how they felt about themselves and their freedom and their safety in the world at large.
0: Yeah, I really liked how this book addressed um, forms of sexual harassment that often aren't considered a, a crime per se, but are still very important to understand and address. Because, like you said, these uh, these instances of sexual harassment, of calling out from cars is also not taken seriously, like something like rape or child sexual abuse. Um so tell us a little bit about the methods that you use to conduct this study and the experience of conducting this research.
1: Sure. I mean, the book is... Um kind of a more accessible version of a previous book that I published um, which is called Men's Intrusion, Women's Embodiment which goes into the methods in a little bit more detail. I mean methods are very interesting for researchers but sometimes Mm -hmm. they can make it harder and less accessible for someone to read. Um, But what I did essentially was spoke to 50 women from across the UK um, and they took part in a three-stage research um, process. So what we did is we had an initial conversation uh, where we spoke about Their experiences of um, uh, harassment in public places, um, uh, kind of charting a bit of a timeline from when they were young up until now, what experiences stood out, those kind of things. And then I asked them to keep a notebook over a period that ranged for different women from, I think it was about two weeks, was the minimum, up to about two months, um, where I asked them specifically to focus on those really everyday experiences that we. Uh, so often don't even recognize or or realize anymore because they've come just part of the background of going outside for many women. Uh, So I think the categories were, uh, there was something about verbal comments, pardon me, uh, being stared at, and something about uh, having your space blocked. So either, you know, like man spreading or uh, men standing in front of you, so you have to walk around them um, on a sidewalk or, or those kind of things. Um, and so I asked them specifically to look at those areas because those are the areas that when we did the initial conversations, uh, women generally would say things like, oh, yeah, I'm sure that's happened to me, but I can't remember when. Like, yeah, 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 that's definitely happened to me. I can't give you an example because it just, it's just fallen into the background of things that have happened um, when I've been in public. And then we did a follow-up interview where we met and discussed what was in their notebook. Um, And that process actually threw up for me what has become the central um, theme really that I've written about and and thought about since. And that is the level of safety work that women are having to do uh, in public spaces in order to try and uh, mitigate the impact of having these kind of experiences um, so commonly, so Um, what I mean by that is in the initial interviews, women would say things like, I think I have these experiences every day. It feels like it's all the time. It happens every time I walk outside the door. And then when they took part in the notebook process, um, they found that that wasn't the case, that actually when they were looking out for these things to happen, they found that it didn't happen as much as they felt like it was happening. It would happen uh, once or twice in a month, for example, rather than every single time they went, um, outside, um. But the point was that it felt like it was happening every time they went outside. So there was some kind of disjuncture there between what the experience was uh, and what was actually happening when they were looking for that. And the way that I was able to make sense of that was by looking at what women were doing to stop it happening um, every single day. And and that's what led me into looking at and developing um, the work of Liz Kelly in terms of safety work.
0: Sure, I think it's a good transition to my next question, which is you talk towards the beginning of the book about the fear of crime paradox. So can you just define what the fear of crime paradox is and the three potential explanations you give, as well as the fourth potential explanation
1: that you give? Sure, so it's something that would be very familiar to a lot of criminologists, um, is the idea, it's, it's a really consistent finding uh, across decades and across multiple studies, that when they look at gendered um, Uh, experiences of crime and gendered fear of crime, they see this uh, disjuncture or this paradox. And so it's the fact that women are much more likely to report a fear of crime, whereas crime statistics show us that men are much more likely to be a victim of crime, talking about crimes in public spaces. Um, And so it's interesting because it's consistent. It's consistent across a load of different research um, methods and and, uh, contexts. And so there's generally three ways that people explain this, which I'm sure most people can think of. You know, most people do think of whenever we talk about this. Um, you know, the first being around gender, basically, expectations of gender. So uh, not just the fact that women have been kind of primed to be scared. Um, you know, when we think about TV shows, uh, movies, you know, women's experiencing violence is uh, frequent if not um, typical uh, of, of uh, a plot line for women in film. Um, and so we are commonly addressed as being, it's much more likely for us to experience violence Um, particularly in public spaces. Uh, But there's also the other side of that in terms of men being told that it's not masculine to express fear, and so men maybe being less likely in studies where they're asking how scared of crime are you, less likely for men to say I'm scared of crime because it goes against um, that expectation of masculinity. Um, There's also the idea about uh, something called the shadow of sexual assault thesis, which is that behind women's fear it, there's actually a fear of a really particular type of crime and that's about sexual assault and that that fear sits behind uh, all experiences of crime and all fear of crime. So things like, and I've definitely found this in my research, um, if a woman in public space is uh, mugged, uh, there is the way that she is responding or the way that she is experiencing that a lot of times will also be in relation to the threat of that mugging turning into a sexual assault. Um, and so that can be quite different, again, to the experiences of, um, in particular, heterosexual men. Um, and then there's, uh, oh, what's the third one? So there's <laughs> This is what happens when you start saying this stuff all the time. There's gender. Yeah. Um, there's the uh, shadow of uh, sexual assault thesis, and I actually can't remember what the third one is, sorry. But the one no, that sorry. I kind of um, worked on and thought of is this idea that women's safety work actually might be doing something in terms of um, preventing the amount of crime that women are experiencing. Okay, I just remember the third one. The third one is about what counts as crime. So Mm -hmm. how are we counting crime when we're saying that men are experiencing more crime in public, uh, that's often using statistics that are based on types of crime that men are more likely to experience. So crimes that women are likely to experience, for example, forms of sexual uh, harassment, um, either don't count as crimes, in inverted commas, so they're not recorded, um, or they're not asked about in the crime surveys that are used. So what is asked about are, is things like mobile phone theft or um, physical assault. So, yeah, so there's Gender what counts as crime and the shadow of sexual assault thesis. And then this fourth one that I kind of developed from what the women were telling me was, um, you know, when we look at this fear of crime paradox, nobody ever asks, the question is always why are women so paranoid basically? Why is women's fear so out of sync with the actual reality? Um, No one asks why men have such a, a misunderstanding of how susceptible they are to crime. No one focuses on maybe there being something wrong with the way that men are. Um, experiencing the world, that there's a problem in them perceiving themselves as not being at risk as much as they are at risk. Um, but more important than that, nobody ever asks if there's actually something that women are doing, if there's something that that fear is encouraging women to do that is actually shutting down or limiting or reducing um, their experience of crime. So if there is actually maybe some kind of causal effect in terms of women's fear is... Uh, encouraging them to behave in particular ways that is actually influencing and reducing the amount of crime that they may be experiencing in terms of the crimes that are counted in these crime surveys. So that's what I wanted to look at. And I think the fact that we never look at that shows how how little we are encouraged to think of women as being actually quite skillful in the ways that we navigate public space and how often we are positioned as being stupid or irresponsible or taking risky proportions or just lacking common sense um, in terms of how we walk around the world it's a it's a shift in terms of seeing women as being perhaps um, very very skillful at preventing violence rather than constantly making us responsible for not preventing violence the inevitable times when we can't
0: yeah and what are kind of talk a little bit more about what are some of the uh, uh, the things that contribute to the fear of crime for women in particular, some of the primary ways that um, women's fear of crime develops.
1: Um, So it's through things like that shadow of sexual assault thesis. Actually, that's one of the ones that I find the most compelling is that when you actually do really start to look around the world, you know, as sociologists, it's one of the things we do look around the world to try and make sense of the way that we interact with and experience the world. Um, and you do start to see the the representations of who is a victim of crime are really, really gendered, um, you know, that women are just much more likely to be shown to be um, a, a victim of crime. But it's not just that they're gendered, they're also quite raced. Um, and so, for example, there's a um, study that I think I draw on in the book and I spoke about quite recently, so it's just at the top of my head, which was on Law and Order section, Sexual Victims Unit, um, and it spoke about the fact that the representations of victims were very gendered and very raced. And so, for example, uh, African-American women who are the group at greatest risk of sexual assault in Manhattan, which is where the um, show is set, uh, are actually the group less likely to be represented um, as victims of sexual assault. So it sets up this idea that, you know, the, the typical or the acceptable victim of sexual assault Um, is not only a woman but is a white woman you know and for that woman to be not seen as being culpable for the sexual assault that she experiences um, generally she's also seen as being a middle class woman an educated woman uh, a woman who we wouldn't think of as otherwise being uh, foolish or or silly and so we start to see that these representations of victims um, of women as victims in the world um, are intersectional right it's not just about the fact that all women are victims it's about the fact that all women are victims and there's some women um, who even when they're victims, it's kind of their fault that that happened to them or they're not going to be represented uh, as victims in the same way. And I think all of those representations feed into women's um, fear plus our actual experiences. I mean, it is very rare to speak to anyone um, who has uh, grown up Um, being identified by other people as a girl or a young woman in the world who has not had experience of uh, having her, her body intruded on, having comments made about herself and her body or feeling in some way as though she's not in control of the space around her that can keep her protected. And so I think that those things combine both the representations, this constant message that you are very likely to be a victim, you're going to be a victim, you're going to be a victim, you're going to be a victim of sexual assault, plus our own experiences of um, victimisation and our own experiences of sexual violence and sexual assault. I think those things combine. Um, And I think that means our fear isn't um, stupid or hysterical or paranoid. I think it's really justified given the world that we live in and what it tells us about what it is to be a woman.
0: Right. And going right into the, uh, the real the real meat of, of the, the main points of your book, you use the term safety work throughout your book. So can you define what you mean by safety work and what it means for understanding how women deal with the potential for victimization?
1: Sure. So safety work is a concept that was um, developed by a sociologist over here um, who's worked on violence against women and girls for decades and decades, um, Liz Kelly. Uh, and she uses it to talk about um, the types of work or labour that, that women do in order to engender a sense of safety um, in the world. And so the way that I've developed that is um, looking at more detail, not only about the types of things that women do, so things like uh what is there, like carrying your keys in your fist or carrying your mobile phone, pretending to talk on your phone, texting someone when you're leaving, texting someone when you're going home, um, if you're going on a date, letting someone else know who the guy is, if he's from Tinder or whatever, or sharing his details, those kind of things. Um, to also thinking about the safety work in terms of women's relationship to our body, Um you know, and, and what this kind of constant fear and these constant experiences um, of sexual violence mean about how we feel to be in our body and if we feel that we're able to just be um, in public space without also having to be thinking in some way about safety or some way scanning our environment um, in terms of safety. And similar to uh, the work of Evan Stark, who works on uh, domestic violence and coercive control, what... I started to see when you've spoken to women about safety work was that there's this tension between um, safety and freedom, which I try and capture in the title of the book, that in order to feel safer, um, what women start to do from very, very early on uh, in childhood, start to do it because we're taught to do it, we're taught that this is the right way to respond, um, is to reduce our freedom a bit. So the most obvious one is freedom of movement. Um, There are very few women that I know that feel Uh, confident, uh, capable, completely fine with going for a run in the dark, for example. Um, And there's women who do that. And when they do it, a lot of the time, it's an act of choice. It's I'm actually going to do this because I don't want to be told when I can and can't, you know, go for a run or go outside. Um, The fact that women, you know, I myself frequently won't take shortcuts to get home uh, when it's very dark at night. um, Even if that shortcut is going to cut you know, 10 minutes (laughs) off my journey. Um, There's a whole bunch of decisions that women will make around movement and around how they are uh, in spaces that is about restricting your freedom in order to feel safer. safer. Uh, But it's not just freedom of movement. So there's also things like the freedom um, of kind of bodily autonomy, um, uh, freedom in the ways that you choose to present yourself or the ways that you choose to be in public. So women would talk about using clothes a lot as some kind of um, barrier or if they were wearing clothes that they knew were going to engender some kind of response, that that almost became part of the outfit, is what this one woman said, this beautiful phrase. that was something like, you know, the sexual harassment becomes part of the outfit, so she kind of prepares herself for it as she's wearing it. Um, and so women would talk about things like taking scarves when they went out to cover up their breasts, um, uh staying away from the color red um actually came up across quite a few women's accounts that they would only wear red um if they were out with uh, a group of friends or if they were out with a male partner um really interestingly women with female partners didn't feel that that was um uh, something that made them feel safer if anything it made them feel as though they'd be more targeted more at risk Um, and so you know, there's both the restricting freedom of movement, and then restricting, you know, the freedom in terms of how you choose to appear or um, present yourself. And then the the last thing was around this kind of freedom to be, to just couldn't think of a better way to put it, but just to be in public space. So. A lot of women have, and, and I think the um, stuff at the moment around COVID-19 has really thrown this up, a lot of women have caring responsibilities at home or have caring roles um, as part of their uh, employment. And for a lot of women, that means that sometimes that time in public space where you're going to or from home or work, you're not in either yet, that can be actually a moment where you're responsible wholly for yourself. You're not responsible or caring for or needing to think about anybody else Um, uh, there's this concept of flow which you may have come up against um, when you were doing your uh, philosophy stuff it's by um, I actually can't pronounce his name so I'm not going to (laughs) Um, but people can uh, uh, look that up I think he's a Czech um, philosopher Um, which is brilliant you know it's this idea that there's these peak mental states which are called flow states you know and you have them generally where it's around creativity so when you're playing music or when you're really engaged in writing um, or drawing or, or anything else, but doesn't only have to happen through creativity. But it, it's times when when time doesn't matter, you know, the times when you suddenly are like, oh, my God, I can't believe I've been doing that for an hour or for half an hour or for however long. I was wholly absorbed in the task at hand. And, what, you know, the way that I want to think about what's happening to women in public space is they're not being allowed that space to potentially get into that space of flow you know you don't have it at home a lot of the time because you have other responsibilities you don't have it at work and for a lot of women for a lot of people public space sitting on the bus um, you know just walking back home can be those moments where you're able to think or not think and those moments for a lot of women and girls are continually interrupted um, both by men and boys actually saying things or actually doing things um, but more so than that, by the fear, the constant kind of watchfulness um, that women are having to have in order to prevent this kind of ever-present threat um, of sexual violence. Because the underpinning message in society is that if that violence is to happen to that woman or that girl, she is going to be responsibleized for it. And she's going to be responsibleized in a different way than men and boys are. So I'm not saying that men and boys don't perform these kinds of safety work, particularly in relationship to other men and boys, you know, different forms of safety work that men are having to do in in order to prevent or lessen the opportunities for other men um, to uh, enact physical violence on them. But there is something really unique and really gendered in the way that women and girls are held responsible for um, sexual violence, for sexual harassment, if it happens to us, and we know that. You know, we've read enough media articles, we've seen enough shows um, that have told us you don't walk down dark alleys, you don't have your headphones on, uh, you don't dress like that, you don't hang out with those kinds of men. Um, and so we know we know that, that if we fail at this task of keeping ourselves safe, we're the ones that are going to be held uh, responsible, not the perpetrator, and that just adds this extra layer um, of, necessity to the work it's mandated for us it's not something that's an optional extra we have to do it otherwise it's going to be our fault what happens to us
0: yeah and you talk about this this term habits of body is that related to habits of body
1: at all um habits of body do you mean like bodily habits i guess
0: yeah yeah just the way that women um use their body or like perform these uh habits without thinking about them to sort of keep themselves safe?
1: Yeah. So um, this is drawing on the work of Merleau-Ponty, who talks a lot about um, the habit body, which is, um, I mean, the best way to think about it, and it absolutely has happened to me multiple times, is things like your PIN number on your card, um, on your bank Mm -hmm. card, or um, when you used to dial people's phone numbers, but more so it's your PIN number on your bank card or things like that. Sometimes I have had um, I have had to remember what that number is and I don't know it unless I, in the air, picture my body typing it out. You know, I can picture my finger going da 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 and then I'm like, oh, okay, I can remember what that number is. So the, the memory, the knowledge is not actually stored in my brain in terms of um, uh, this is the number. It's stored in my brain in terms of this is what my body does to get that thing to happen. And so... Merleau-Ponty talks a lot about these kind of bodily habits that actually we store things in our body. You know, we know this about trauma as well in terms of um, experiences of violence and abuse, that it's not, it's stored in the brain, but it's the body takes, is part of the brain, the brain is part of the body. It's stored in our body, um, not just only in this kind of logical or rational numbers and words part of our brain. And so some of the stuff around safety work, I think, um, from what women have said, is again, it's stored in the body. So it's not even really immediately available to us when we try and think about what it is we do in public. So in terms of the method that I used uh, in the research, when I first spoke to women, um, alongside them saying, this is something that happens every day, this is really typical, this is just part of the experience of being in the world. When I asked them, you know, what do you do in order to I guess, prevent this from happening, or what do you do to lessen the opportunities for this to happen? They'd say things like, Oh, not much. You know, I don't think I do much. I think, you know, I generally live in the world in the way that I want to, and I'm free, and, you know, I'm a feminist, and I think women should be able to walk anywhere they want and wear whatever they want, and I'm not scared, and, you know, all this stuff that I myself absolutely think and believe um, about myself and the way that I am in the world. And then part of the process of doing the notebook was to ask them, you know, to take notice of these bodily habits when they were in public space. And when we had this second conversation, it really came up, they were all very, very surprised um, when they actually started to look at the amount of times where they made decisions based on um, this kind of lessening of freedom in order to increase this sense of safety. And it's something that I myself started to notice, you know, as a researcher, you start to especially if you're researching a topic that's very close to your heart you start to take on or to to look at the topic in terms of your own everyday experiences and I started to notice things like when I was waiting for a train I would um, always find a place where there was like a pillar or a wall or something I wouldn't want to wait on an open platform I'd always kind of go somewhere where my back was against a wall or you know so basically there was a side of me that was not available, that that was kind of cut off. Um, I started to notice that when I got on that train, I would do really basic kind of scanning of where to sit and I would identify men in the carriage that looked a little dodgy or a little bit creepy. Um, And it was just this kind of automatic reflex uh, that I was doing. And more for, as this information started to come in from, you know, I spoke to 50 women from more and more and more of them, I started to think that this is really something that's quite interesting, that we really are not used to thinking of ourselves as doing the safety work, that it is habitual, that at some point, and for a lot of women it becomes quite early in um, adolescence or pre-adolescence, we're taught that this is normal, that this is usual for women, that this is just part of what it's like to be um, a woman or or a girl in the world, um, is to do things uh, like this, you know, is to constantly be on the lookout um, for sites of potential danger Um, and that's I mean it's not a great way to have to be um, in the world you know that it has such a significant impact on us and that this is an impact that actually we don't recognize we very rarely recognize because it's become so normal.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. The, the example that really solidified that concept for me was the bus example where, oh, I'm getting on the bus. Where am I going to sit? Um, who, who's around me? And then, like you said, as a researcher, like you start to think about these things in your own life. And as I go for a walk outside to get out of the house, like I noticed myself doing the same thing. It's like who is around me, ah. um, being like spatially aware of who's around me without even thinking about it.
1: And then, and the thing is, the point is why that's important is because then what's happening is we're not actually giving ourselves credit for all of the work that we are doing that is potentially disrupting or minimizing opportunities for, you know, not just crime, but for violence, for abuse. We are only ever, we can only ever see or only ever held accountable for those times when our work doesn't work. We're never encouraged or enabled to see the amount of times that maybe some of that work is successful, that maybe our scanning was successful and it meant that we were able to sit somewhere where something didn't then happen. But you can't count that because nothing happened. And so it just kind of continues or exasperates this situation where women aren't seen as being capable. We're just seen as being culpable. So we're never capable in relation to preventing sexual violence. We're only culpable for not preventing sexual violence.
0: Yeah, there's another um, discussion you have in the book that really interested me, and that is the role of politeness, um, because I see this a lot um, in my own life and in the lives of my friends. And how does politeness play a role in this safety work and how women go about the world?
1: Yeah, it's massive. And I mean, this is not something that's just from this work. I mean, there's quite a, a nice body of literature that talks about how some of these gendered norms really position Uh, women in ways where we, it's not that we're more likely to experience violence, but that the tools that someone would normally use in order to um, prevent violence are taken away from us because they're seen as being not feminine um, or not really appropriate. And politeness, teaching women to be polite, teaching young women in particular to be polite, is really one of those things. So we think about some of the messages, you know, all children are told to be polite. Um, but the really particular messages that we get to to young girls um, is around you don't want to be seen as a bitch. No one wants to be seen as a bitch. No one wants to be seen as someone who's uh, too big for her britches. I don't know if anyone even says that anymore. Yeah. Um, there's really particular um, connotations around uh, black women. If they're not polite and submissive, you know, they're seen as being the angry black woman. Like you don't want to be the angry black woman because then anything that you say, any valid point that you have is dismissed. Um, it's that doesn't matter you're just being this stereotype of an angry uh, black woman and politeness is kind of forced on um, young women in particular you know listen to adults be nice to adults and what that means is that in situations where I've spoken to um, I didn't speak to anyone who's under 18 I have since spoken in in various contexts to Uh, younger high school age uh, girls but for the research this book was based on the youngest was I think 18 but definitely that age group 18 19 20 and women talking about um experiences they had when they were that age there really is something there about young women not yet feeling able or not yet being encouraged by society to um express anger or to um Reject quite forcefully or to ignore. Um, we're, we're teaching women instead, young women instead, that they should smile politely, um, that they should kind of entertain these pointless conversations that they're having to get into with random men about where they're going or where they've been or if they have a boyfriend or what they're studying in school. I mean, these are conversations these young women don't want to be having with a 30 year old man, 40 year old man, 50 year old man. She wants to just be able to be. public as an 18-year-old young woman Um, but instead she's having to get involved in these conversations and the message that we're sending her um, in terms of the gendered message that we send young women is you have to be polite Um, and so I've had women talk to me about being on a bus and having a man come and sit next to them and put his hand on her leg and start rubbing her leg and talking to her about um, you know where she'd been that night or where she was getting off the bus and she felt completely unable um, to tell him to just, you know, I can't say this in any nicer way, but you know what I mean, like to, to tell him to, yeah. go, to go away. She felt unable to do that. And so she rang the bell and had to try and get up and say, um, you know, and, and get off at a stop. And she was berating herself afterwards for saying excuse me to him as she had to walk past him. Um, and this was a man who had been sitting there with his hand on her, lap, absolutely sexually assaulting her, um, and she had to act Uh, with deference and and apologetic to him in order to squeeze past him in order to get off the bus um, to get out of that situation because that's the message that we tell, um, that we teach to young women, you know, that you need to be polite, you need to be courteous um, and above all you need to kind of be quite silent. Um, And I think that the kinds of men that do this um, type of uh, abusive behaviour continuously or repeatedly you know that the types of men that do this know that about young women and so they target young women and I think young women are targeted because these men know that they are much less likely than a 30 year old woman than a 40 year old woman to be told to fuck off because the young women have not been given that message they've not been told that actually you are able to respond um, to behavior that is inappropriate with uh, language and behavior that might be inappropriate in other situations. And so I think I think that that is one of the core cool reasons, it's one of the major reasons that so many women spoke to me about these experiences really coalescing around uh, their early adolescence um, up to kind of their later adolescence and then starting to fall away as they got a little bit older. So as they came into their 20s, moved into their 30s and started to feel a bit more confident um, about themselves and really started to be able to develop Uh, that their safety work and their sense that it was their right to tell someone to leave them alone if they needed to.
0: Absolutely. And it sounds like in addition to gender playing a role there, it sounds like age is playing a role there too and like how we teach young women to respect um, older people and to defer to older folks. And
1: Absolutely. um,
0: Yeah. So shifting a little bit to some of the ways that things are changing in terms of sexual violence and harassment. Can you talk a bit about how people are trying to enact change? You mentioned in the book things like feminist self-defense and communities of corroboration and the broader movements like Me Too. So I'm interested in your take on how people are trying to enact change.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think Me Too was massive um, in terms of changing some of the uh, cultural backing that was there for these kinds of behaviours to be dismissed as not that important um, or, you know, the idea that nothing really happened because it's not that serious. So maybe you were followed, but it didn't really turn into anything. So it doesn't matter. Um, I think that Me Too really enabled um, a lot of people uh, to start to see the, how cumulative these experiences are, that it's not just that this happens once in your life, that this happens multiple and multiple and multiple times. And there was no way I think that anyone could read through uh, some of what was disclosed and revealed around some of the Me Too stuff online and not feel completely overwhelmed and then to think, wow, this is actually what a lot of women's daily life is like, you know, this feeling of being completely overwhelmed by all these different forms, you know, in the workplace, in the home, in public space. And so I think it really did something in terms of shifting that trivialization. Um really was acting as a barrier to anyone talking about these experiences as having an impact because you don't want to be seen as someone who's saying, you know, oh, I was whistled at and I didn't like it um, when actually we know that, you know, there's two women dying a week um, at the hands of their abusive male partner. And so, you know, what's happening in terms of being whistled at is nothing compared um, to that. But it, it did something in terms of saying that these things are connected Actually, it's important that we have spaces for women to talk about all of them. Um, it also obviously did some, some really important things around uh, intersectionality um, and breaking this idea that sexual violence is something that happens to some kinds of women, that it happens to poor women, um, that it happens to migrant women, you know, showing that actually this is women, this is some of the women who are at the top of their game. Um, in Hollywood, this is women that we perceive as having a lot of power. Um, this is also something that was happening to them. Um, but in terms of the responses and, uh, the solidarity, I think that was shown between those different groups of women, I think definitely when it first happened, that was some of the most powerful things that came out of that, how that's kind of traveled is, um, I guess a different point. Um, But yeah, so there's things around Me Too, the way that online spaces have opened up spaces for communication and for sharing some of these um, stories and for access to voices that aren't heard in mainstream press, you know, voices that are different than the kind of white middle-class woman's voice, heterosexual woman's voice that's heard a lot of the time. Um, Feminist self-defence is something as well. I'm not sure. I mean, it's it's treated and and looked at differently in different um, contexts. Here in the UK, it has, feminists have a, difficult relationship to it i guess um, some feminists say that it's uh victim blaming that self-defense is victim blaming um other feminists such as myself think that actually done right um it's a really incredible way to start to undo the way that we're been taught as women to think of our bodies as uh pretty useless you know the ways that we've been taught to think about our bodies in terms of what they look like not in terms of what they can do Um, And I think if it's done well, it's very different from this idea of um, like martial arts uh, that people seem to think uh, that it is like Krav Maga and and all of those kind of things. You know, feminist self-defence is very much about um, challenging gender norms and gender stereotypes and really starting to talk to women about their relationship to their body um, and where that comes from and, and starting to look at how society has positioned us to have a particular relationship to our body that is one of alienation and of insecurity um of dislike you know something that really came up in terms of um a core part of safety work that a lot of women i spoke to did was uh try to make themselves smaller um in public and, and both in terms of like a literal sense of trying to be smaller so doing things like um you know, crossing your legs or just trying to take up less space, trying to be invisible. Um, but that, that translates um, into kind of symbolic, you know, trying to be smaller, trying to not stand out, trying to not actually take the space that you're entitled to. And I think feminist self-defence, if it's done right, um, can really start to undo some of that um, and encourage us to, take up our space, you know, and to use the space that we take up to create space for other women, you know, not just to take the space ourselves but to use it to create space, um, to sometimes give up our space in order to allow other women to take that space, you know. That And that's what I mean by this community of corroboration is that actually, you know, the, the what was so great about Me Too and the power in Me Too was the fact that it was so many voices, you um, Because there were so many people saying this happened to me too and me too and me too. The the message could no longer be ignored. And I think that that shows us that our freedoms are really interconnected. Again, thinking about the COVID-19 thing that we've got going on at the moment, it really shows us how interconnected we are as people and we're not encouraged to think about ourselves like that. We're encouraged to think about ourselves as these little, isolated, productive capitalist units you know and actually what's revealed is that we are so interconnected that you know the health of me and my family is dependent on the health of you and your family it's we're we're indelibly connected um and we need to start thinking about that in terms of um how we work towards women's freedom so not just thinking about you know freedom and gender equality in terms of ourselves but about how we work together um, to create a space where all women have access to the same uh, resources and freedoms that currently some women in society do. So, I think there is work that's happening. Um, there's just there's more always more, more work than that that's needed, right?
0: Absolutely. And in addition to more of the the aspects of social change that we just talked about, um, where do you think? Research should focus its efforts on in the future um, about this topic. So, what do you think
1: scholars who study this, what do you think are some good avenues of research going forward? Yeah, I actually just had someone contact me who's doing a PhD looking at um, LGBT people's experiences in uh, nightclubs, I think, and looking at safety work in relationship to that. And I think there's absolutely um, something there about looking at how this. Um, how the experience of sexual harassment and how the concept of safety work um, applies or doesn't apply or what it means um, for uh, gender and sexuality diverse people. Um, my sample was, it wasn't all heterosexual, but it was largely heterosexual. Um, and I think that there's something really, the, the differences that I did see with women who talked about being in public space with a women partner and what that meant for them, Um, I think there's something really interesting there that could be pushed um, or could be thought about a little bit more. Um, And I think also there needs to be some, I mean, there's been some really good evaluations and and thinking about feminist self-defence, but I think there needs to be more work or thought around um, gendered embodiment, what that means and how that connects to experiences of violence. So the ways that violence acts to gender, the body, or to teach us to be um, a, a particular type of body, I think there's some really interesting avenues to to start looking at things um, in that way too, to really help us to to improve our understanding around the impacts and consequences of violence against women and girls, and then on the other side of that, what we need to do in order to prevent or uh, limit um, the those those impacts um, for women who have experienced violence. Yeah.
0: And then thinking broadly about your research, I always like to ask this question of researchers. What surprised you the most about your research process or your findings?
1: Yeah, so the biggest, I mean, I love that question because it is, it's, is—it's for anyone that's starting doing research, the thing that surprises you is the thing that's the most interesting, I think. Yeah. It's going to be the most interesting. And the thing that surprised me was when women did the notebooks and came back and said that they hadn't experienced not even half as much as they thought that they had. Um you know I didn't expect that I expected women to be saying oh my god this happens every day I went outside and I was all fissled out and I had this happen and I had this happen and I had women come back with blank notebooks going look I looked around for you know two weeks and I couldn't see like nothing happened and that was fascinating and that I guess started me on the journey of how do I analyze that um without you know doing the kind of I guess a lazy interpretation which is that women are wrong and they're just paranoid that they think that this happens all the time and it doesn't but how do I actually dig into that to try and find out or make sense of what is happening why is that disjuncture there why are we feeling as though this happens all the time but when we look for it it's it's a, a very different uh yeah it looks very different than what we thought it would look like
0: and that's what I found so great about your 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 book is that it would be so easy to fall into the idea or the writing that, oh, women are just paranoid and there's really not a problem here. But there still is a problem. If women are feeling unsafe, like that is still a problem, regardless of whether or not they're, they're experiencing this victimization day in and day out.
1: Exactly, and the thing is that this feeling of being unsafe wasn't coming from anywhere. So every woman that I spoke to was able to give me multiple examples of when this has happened in their life, and most of them had one or two standout experiences. So most of them were able to say, I remember being 14 and I remember some man following me to school and then flashing, or I remember some man masturbating at me when I walked through uh, the underground. And those experiences were enough to set up this template that the world is unsafe and you are responsible for keeping yourself safe within it. So it wasn't that we were paranoid and just making the stuff out of nowhere, it was a combination of the messages that we received about ourselves and our susceptibility to violence and our own real life experiences of being being a victim of uh, a, a range of forms of violence and abuse.
0: For sure. Yeah. And going back to future research agendas, I think the part about LGBTQ folks, especially trans women, I think that the violence against trans women and how trans women go about the world um, is another really interesting avenue to to explore there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And talking to trans women about, you know, the trans women occupy a really interesting position where they may be able to talk about what it's been like being experienced by the world as being, a man at times and what it's been like being experienced by the world as being a woman and that that might be different and that that might influence the work that you feel that you have to do. That There's a whole bunch of really interesting stuff there around gender that I think um, trans men and trans women can start to to tell us so that we can have a more rich and developed understanding of what it's like to be a gendered person in the world.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, well, we've taken up a bunch of your time today, but I really want to ask um, the final question that we always ask on the Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now or next?
1: Yeah, so after that project, I started working on a project I'm just writing up now, which is about women and pornography. So it feels like a bit of a sidestep, but it's (laughs) not. I mean, my central, my interest is is in uh, women's experience of the world. And, uh, yeah, I was interested in talking to women about um, their experiences of pornography. So women that have watched pornography, women that have been in pornography, women that you know campaign against pornography. Um, and so hopefully that's you know I'm running it up now. I spoke to a hundred women, did uh, in-depth interviews with them, and it's come out with some really fascinating, really fascinating stuff. So I'm trying hard to get that written, and hopefully that's going to be the basis of a book that'll be out um, in a year or so's time.
0: Oh, that sounds like a great project. And one of my own interests um, is sex work. So I'll be interested in oh, reading brilliant. that book. Yeah. But uh, where can listeners find you online to learn more about your work and your book?
1: Um, yeah. So they can just Google me, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. I've got a staff webpage from Durham University and I'm pretty active on Twitter. So, um, yeah, you can find all that stuff just by um, Googling me online.
0: Awesome. Well, great. Again, this has been an interview with Dr. Fiona Vera-Grey, author of The Right Amount of Panic, How Women Trade Freedom for Safety. Dr. Vera-Grey, I want to thank you again for being on the show today, and I really enjoyed chatting with you.
1: That's brilliant. Yeah, no, I've really enjoyed it, Christina. Thank you.
0: Yeah, well, take care. Yeah, you too.